Well, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I want to welcome those of you that are here at our Bellingham campus. I want to welcome and say good morning to those who are watching at our Ferndale campus as well and to those who are watching online. If you are watching in Ferndale, you just got to do something very special that I'll share with those that are here at the Bellingham campus. We just installed a campus pastor in Ferndale. Pastor Rich Warner and his wife Becky joined us several months ago, and uh, if you're watching in Ferndale, they just finished praying over Rich and his wife Becky. This is kind of a new chapter for us at Christ the King. We've planted autonomous churches before. This is our first video campus, and uh, we are just very excited about Rich and his leadership and desperately uh, are praying that God will touch him and use his leadership there at that particular campus couple of announcements as we get started. Tonight at 7 o'clock here at the Bellingham campus is our family meeting. And our family meeting is kind of when we do the business of the church. It happens once a year. And normally what I hear as a response is this from Christ the King people. You know, everything looks like it's going great. Church is growing. Everything's fine. So we trust you. Go and just do what you got to do. I don't need to come to the meeting. Can you do me a big favor for one night? Would you please not trust us? Just don't trust us. Come, ask your questions tonight. We throw everything out on the table. We talk about direction, where we've come from, where we're going. It's open to members of the church. It's open to people that are just curious. If you'd like to come and just hang out with us, we got nothing to hide. So we'd love for you to come and join us tonight from 7 to 8. That would be fantastic. If you go through your program, you're going to see lots of opportunities. If you're newly engaged, we've got opportunities for you. If you'd like to dedicate your children, we've got opportunities for you. Take a look through the program. There's so much going on over the next couple of weeks. And as well, in two weeks, we're going to be baptizing at all four services at Christ the King. And so if you'd like to be baptized, we'd encourage you to think about that, to be obedient to Christ, and, and to uh, register ahead of time so we can kind of set up the services as they're going to be going through. And so we just lay that opportunity in front of you. I'll be talking about that in just a couple of minutes. So we're going to try and do something very difficult today. We're going to try and cover the highlights and the lowlights of an entire biblical book in 27 minutes, all right? I mean, we're going to crank through this thing, so you need to fasten your seatbelt and walk through this. I thought I could just tell you the story of Jonah, even though many of you are familiar with it, but I found a different medium that I think will communicate just as well, so we're going to watch the story of Jonah in less than 40 seconds. Are you ready? Let's watch the screens together. Here comes the story of Jonah. There you go. All right? All right? Have you got it? Even if you didn't get it, we're going to spend the next little while walking through step by step, piece by piece, through the book of Jonah. And before we even start on the book of Jonah, well, I'm going to answer a question that I know I'm going to get at some point this coming week. Because whenever we talk about this story, someone asks the question, do you guys at Christ the King really believe that the story of Jonah is an actual account from history? Let me answer it for you. Yes. Yes, we do. 
And we believe it because we've given ourselves away to a literal, historical, and grammatical interpretation of Scripture. At Christ the King, we believe the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book, so help us God. All right? So in the account of Jonah, we find Jonah and God giving themselves away to an encounter that really boils down to the mercy of God and the fear of man. So let's walk it through together. It starts with this. God calls for action. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And he said, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So we, we find out right at the beginning of the book that God is a holy and righteous God. That God is pure. That God hates sin. That God doesn't hate sinners, but he hates sin because of what sin does inside of our lives. Sin messes people up. And God calls Jonah to do the same thing that he calls me to do every single week, which is not to preach against people, but to preach against sin in hopes that people will turn away from sin and to the God of grace who sent his son Jesus here to conquer sin, death, and the grave. Jonah gets the call on his life, and he freaks out. Jonah freaks out because he doesn't like Assyria, and that's where Nineveh is. He doesn't like the Assyrians because they are enemies of God's people, Israel. He just doesn't like them. He doesn't have a really good reason not to like them. He just doesn't like them. In fact, he likes the idea of God doing what he says he's going to do, which is to swoop in and fry the whole lot of them. Jonah thinks it'd be a great idea if God toasted Nineveh. He thinks that would be fantastic. He doesn't like the idea of preaching repentance to them because he knows this message is not going to be well received. I mean, let's just face it. When you tell people that they're sinners and that they need to repent, that doesn't necessarily bring about the warmest fuzzy reception at times. It comes with the job. This is what happens. Jonah gives himself away to fear. He gives himself away to fear. Jonah chapter 1 verse 3 says this, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Jonah beats a path and runs. If you look at a map, if God sent Jonah to Nineveh, he actually goes two and a half times in the opposite direction, running as fast as he can. Nobody can accuse Jonah of not being thorough. I mean, he's going the other way as fast and as hard as he can. God calls him. Jonah runs, and then an amazing thing happens. Instead of God just saying, you know, Jonah, just go off on your own. Do whatever you want to. I don't really care. God does the opposite. God actually pursues this rebellious prophet. The Bible says this, Jonah 1 verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. Some of you have heard the phrase before, there are no atheists in foxholes. Apparently, there's no atheists in the middle of hurricanes either, all right? Every single one of them is screaming out to his own God. I love the fact that God pursues. I love the fact that God pursues because I was once a runner. God called and I ran. And the truth today in this moment is there's a lot of us who've been running for a really, really long time. Can I tell you something from experience? If you're running today, it's this. You can run, but the love of God will follow you consistently, persistently, always calling and asking you to come home. Francis Thompson wrote a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. 
Because that's like God is. He just follows. And once he's got your scent, he will never, ever let it go. The poem says this. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him in underrunning laughter. Up visited hopes, I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed tears from those strong feet that followed me, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, a deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee. Who betrayest me. The hound of heaven was pursuing Jonah with everything that he had, calling and drawing him. And Jonah learns a life lesson here. The life lesson says this, you can't escape God. You can try. You can run, duck, bob, and weave. I did it for years. You can run as fast as you can, but you can't escape God. God. His love is so overwhelming, it will pursue you, continue to follow you. And Jonah comes to this realization, I can't outrun God. So in the story, he turns himself in to to the other guys on the boat, and they find a quick solution. Get rid of Jonah. This guy's the problem. Ditch him. Throw him overboard. Maybe the storm will stop. And that's exactly what happens. So somewhat voluntarily, Jonah gives himself away to drowning. Not very glorious, but that's what happens. Jonah chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Scripture says this, Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I mean, I kind of chuckle when I see this. Here's Jonah bobbing in the water as the boat goes away. Jonah's having a crisis, and a revival breaks out on the boat. All of a sudden, everybody's getting saved. This is awesome. Look at Jonah's God. We got rid of him, and now all of a sudden, we've got an opportunity to turn to God, and they start making promises. My friends, be very, very careful what you promise God in the middle of a crisis. Because God hears every word that you say, and He will hold you accountable for the promises you make. I mean, how many of us in the middle of a meltdown, God, I promise I'll never, ever do this again. Careful now, because God actually heard that. I'm sure Jonah was making a few promises as well as he was there in the water, all by himself, alone, wet, without hope. And then the unthinkable happens. God does something very unusual here. God provides I mean, you'd think after so much rebellion, at some point, God would just go, you know, enough with you. I'll go find another prophet. But not God. God provides. Jonah 1.17 says this, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. I want us to notice something here because I think we miss this over and over and over again. When you read the story of Jonah, you need to understand this. The fish is not punishment. The fish is salvation. Without the fish, Jonah's dead. He's going to drown. You can't tread water that long. It's just the bottom line. Without the fish, Jonah's dead. Even though Jonah ran, God had mercy 
and in that moment sent both salvation and transportation for Jonah. It's an amazing testimony of the love and the persistence of God, is it not? Make no mistake, Jonah deserved unyielding justice, but what he got was mercy. Christ the King, make no mistake, we deserve unyielding justice, but what God offers is mercy and forgiveness. So we find Jonah in the fish. Jonah gives himself away to something else here. He gives himself away in prayer. The Bible says, Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and God listened to my cry. And at the end of his prayer, Jonah sums the whole thing up with this statement. Salvation comes from the Lord. Even though he ran, even though he was at rock bottom, Jonah can finally say it. Salvation comes from the Lord. Have you ever been there? Have you ever hit absolute rock bottom? Have you ever completely run out of options? Because that's exactly where Jonah is. For some of us, it happens in a hospital waiting room. For some of us, it happens when we have this horrifying moment that we are actually a slave to an addiction that we thought we had under control. For some of us, it happens when our kids seem absolutely beyond hope and we, and we don't know where to go or what to pray anymore. For others, it happens in the very pit of loneliness. Do you remember back to the first week of the series? King David, in the bottom of a pit, it doesn't get any lower than in that moment. If you look at David's prayer from Psalm 40 and Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, boy, do they ever sound a lot alike. Two men at the bottom of their existence crying out to God and we find an amazing truth. God is both in the bottom of the pit and in the fish with Jonah. What's the life lesson we learn there? We learn this. God will go to great depths to show His mercy. No pun intended. God will go to great depths to show His mercy. Jonah calls out for mercy and God meets him there. God forgives him and then instead of just letting Jonah slide off the hook, God actually takes another step forward. God persists. That's the next blank in your outline. God persists. Jonah chapter 2 says this, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Can you imagine God making that call? It's like, <laughs> all right, fish. Let her rip, right? I mean, if you watch the video, the fish hawked up a loogie. <laughs> I mean, just out he goes, spits him onto dry land. I just, my twisted imagination, I just think God must have just enjoyed that moment. Okay, let it fly. Here it comes. Scripture goes on, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. God says, okay, Jonah. You missed it the first time, but here's another opportunity. How many of us have ever been there before? You missed it the first time, but here's another opportunity. God says the people of Nineveh still need the message, so off you go. I mean, I think all of us kind of get a little freaked out when we see that part of it. 
Because there's this belief amongst Christian circles that if we fully and truly surrender ourselves to God, that somewhere along the line, God's going to decide to send us to Cleveland or concrete or Tacoma, right? You know, when Laurel and I were thinking about moving to Washington, I've got to be honest, um, the rain and the cow smell... They just weren't that attractive to a couple of people that were used to living on the flatlands of Manitoba. I remember Laurel telling me that, that she actually came out of sheer obedience because she knew something. She came out of sheer obedience because she knew that it was only outside of God's will that she would ever be truly miserable. What does that mean? It means this. It means wherever God sends you, that's the only place you'll ever be able to find pure joy and peace. So you can run in the opposite direction. You're just going to be miserable. Jonah finally found a little bit of joy and peace when he actually surrendered and went to do what God had called him to do. And in that moment, here comes the next blank, Jonah gives himself away to obedience. Jonah 3.3, 3. it's the highlight of the story. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So there he goes, Right? Fish smell and all. I laugh when I think about this, because just picture it. Jonah's been sitting, stewing in the gastric juices of a very large fish for three days and three nights, 72 whole hours. And then he gets spit up on the beach of Nineveh, and God says, go and tell them. I mean, I just pick, I just picture Jonah bleached completely white from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's like Mr. Clean from the old commercials. Do you remember that? White tea, everything is just white, and he shows up in the middle of Nineveh, smelling like a tuna with a piece of seaweed wrapped around his head, and he stands in the middle of the market square and says, repent, or this will happen to you, right? <laughs> What's the life lesson here? I think it's pretty simple. The life lesson is that obedience matters to God. So Christ the King, Bellingham, Ferndale... What's God asking you to do right now? Is He asking you to move? Is He asking you to speak? Is He asking you to surrender? Is He asking you to yield once and for all? Is He asking you to give? Is He asking you to step out? Is He asking you to pray? Are you supposed to just blow by that 24-7 board out there and, and not grab an hour to pray? Are you supposed to ignore it hoping somebody else does it? Or are you actually supposed to yield and do what God's called you to do? Has He asked you to serve? Has He asked you to preach? Has He asked you to do more? Or is He asking you to do less? could be both. Is He asking some of you to speak up? How about if he's asking some of you just to quiet down a little bit? Is he asking you to give your heart to Jesus? Is he asking you to be baptized 14 days, two weeks? I know if Jonah was here right now, standing on this platform, he would say this, whatever it is that God is asking you to do, do it. Don't run. Do it. That's where you're going to find joy and peace. So even though Jonah's been unbelievably rebellious, gone and done his own thing, 
taking a time out in the bottom of a fish. God provides something else. God actually provides salvation. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 and then jumping down to verse 10 says this, the Ninevites believed God. It's amazing. The Ninevites believed God. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Jonah preaches and an amazing thing happens. People turn to God. The Bible says the whole city all of a sudden had this incredible epiphany. And all of a sudden they have a moment of clarity. They say, we've been serving the wrong God. We've got to get with the right program. Amazing thing happens when God's people are obedient. My second Easter, Christ the King, uh, completely freaked me out. Some of you will remember it. My second Easter, Christ the King, we, we, we had planned a moment at the end of the service. We were doing one on Saturday night, three on Sunday morning at that time. And I'd planned at the end of the service to have a moment when we were going to ask people to do something that they don't normally do, which is to respond publicly to the call of Jesus on their life, to come forward, to accept Christ, and then to move to another room where we would pray with people and counsel with people. I got to the moment at the end of the first service, and I chickened out. I just didn't do it. I gave in to a little voice that was whispering in my ear, what if nobody comes? You're going to look like an idiot. Don't do it. The message isn't that good anyway. So I didn't. I let people have a little private thing, and then I wrapped up, and I walked out that side door, and I got in my car, and I was at home before most people even got an opportunity to leave the church. I got home ashamed because I caved and then a good friend showed up in my driveway because he followed me home and he knocked on my door and he came into my living room and he sat on the sofa and he called me out he said I just want to remind you of a few things you can't save anybody Only Jesus does that. And if you really trust Jesus, maybe tomorrow you ought to show up on Resurrection Sunday, grow a spine, preach a message with everything that you have under the banner of two words, Jesus saves. He basically said this, I dare you. I dare you to man up because if you man up, God might actually show up. Well, in this moment, Jonah mans up, and God shows up, and a revival breaks out in the city. And it would be so awesome if the story finished here. I mean, it'd be perfect. You could tie a nice bow on the top of it, nice hallmark ending. Everybody gets saved. Jonah gets elected mayor of Nineveh. I mean, it's just awesome. The fish stays in the bay for several years, and they turn him into a show. I mean, it's just awesome. doesn't happen. God unleashes a revival, and Jonah gives himself away to something, but it's not what you think it would be. The Bible says Jonah gives himself away to disappointment. So right after the revival, this is what happens. The Bible says, Jonah 4, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
Are you kidding me? Does he not sound like a five-year-old to you? Do you remember what it was like when we were five and we'd play a family game, and as soon as we figured out we were losing, all of a sudden, I don't want to play anymore. I'm done. I'm out. You guys can finish the game on your own, right? I mean, you can just listen to him saying it. He says, I knew it, God. I knew before I left. I knew you were going to make a fool out of me. I mean, what are these people going to think about this prophet now? Because I said you were going to toast him, and instead you decided to love him. I mean, I can hear Jonah just saying, I told them you were going to fry them, but now you, you big forgiver, you, you aren't going to fry them like they deserve. I wanted a lightning show, and you decided to hug them instead. Are you kidding me? I'm mad. Check it out if you don't believe me. It's in the book. Let's stop here for a second. Let's try and figure out what Jonah's happened. What's happening to Jonah? Do you remember what Jonah was praying for in chapter 2? He was praying that God would give him grace and mercy. What did God give him? Grace and mercy. What's he hoping for in chapter 4 because it's not him on the block anymore? wrath and judgment. Jonah forgot to extend to somebody else the very thing that he'd received. God's grace was good enough for him, but not good enough for anybody else. Now, Jonah wanted God to judge that group of rebellious runners that were holed up in Nineveh. He just didn't want him to judge the rebellious running prophet that had been beating tail for the whole first part of his book. So what's the life lesson here for us? I believe it's this. Always remember the grace that saved you. Always. I meet people all the time who are saved by the grace of God, and then after they get a little bit of Bible knowledge in their brain, they turn into these legalistic gatekeepers that are more concerned with keeping everybody out than inviting everybody in. God's grace was good enough for them, but when it extends to that messy person, I don't know. Hold on. We just have to slow this one down a little bit. Jonah just gets all caught up in the wrong stuff. And he leads me to a moment that I had on Wednesday. I've been studying this book inside and out for several weeks. And I have a moment on Wednesday that I think Jonah would understand. I'm pulling out of the church parking lot and I'm driving past the adult store that's on the corner of the property right here. And I find myself praying, sick of God. Just flatten it out. Cripple the cars in the parking lot. Just take them out. I drive through downtown Bellingham and I cruise past Planned Parenthood. And what's in my heart? You judge them, God. You just bring your hand down. Don't you hate it when God shows up in your car? And just kind of taps his fingers on your dashboard? Should not my prayer be, God, would you invade them with your love the same way that your love invaded me? 
God, would you change them in the same way that you gave me an opportunity to change? God, you big forgiver, you, would you so overwhelm them with your love, grace, and mercy that they don't need to go chasing something that's not real? God, would you so infect them with the life that you gave us because you rose from the dead that they would want to love life as much as you do? God, would you allow a revival to break out inside of there so that they don't need it anymore? I guess my question for the veteran believers here that convicted me this past week is, are you praying against the sin or are you just judging the people? Because the last time I checked, that should be in God's hands. But Jonah gets wrapped up in all the wrong stuff. He gets all caught up in the fact he thought Nineveh should just get crushed. He's ticked at God because God forgave and touched. What happens? Jonah goes off and pouts. The Bible says he goes and sits on a hill and he pouts. And while he's pouting, the sun gets really hot and starts cooking his head. And he doesn't have any sunblock, so he's just unbelievably miserable. For the second time, Jonah says, God, just kill me now. Just wipe me out. What a whiner, right? I mean, you can read it for yourself in Jonah chapter 4. It's an amazing story because even though he's been rebellious and angry and frustrating, he must have been frustrating, God actually looks at him being cooked out on the top of the hill, and God grows a plant for him to give him some shade. I mean, what lengths will God not go to to touch people? He grows a big plant, gives him some shade, and Jonah's like, oh, okay, this is better. Finally, God's getting with my program. Then God sends a worm that eats the plant. The plant croaks, and Jonah's mad again. And in the moment when Jonah gets unbelievably frustrated, God comes and gives him some perspective. Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Your last blank there is perspective. It says, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city. God says, Jonah, you got wrapped up in all the wrong stuff. You got all concerned about your reputation and your plant and your plan and your pride. You got all wrapped up in the wrong stuff. Jonah, you forgot something. There's 120,000 people whose eternity is hanging in the balance, Jonah. They need me. I needed you to go and tell them that they need me. Jonah, that's what this was all about, saving Nineveh. Not your rep, not your understanding, nothing like that. This is about them. Christ the King, this is not about our rep. This is about them. The people of Whatcom County desperately need Jesus. This is about them. If we ever forget that, you know where we end up? Rebellious and obstinate sitting on the side of a hill having a time out with God. That's where we end up. May God forbid that ever happens. 
What's the life lesson here? I think it's pretty clear. People matter to God. I mean, I know that's kind of a duh, but it's true. People matter to God. And that's it. That's the end of the story. No happy ending. The story closes. God and Jonah on the side of the hill. It's kind of like one of those movies where you're waiting for the happy ending and all of a sudden there go the credits and you're like, no! They can't end there. I need answers. What happened? Did he throw him back in the fish? I, what happened? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. So as the curtain drops, we're all here to ask a question. Where are you in the story? Okay? You don't get to be God. And the fish is not available to you either. One of two choices. Veteran believers, uh, are you Jonah? Are you running in the opposite direction of God, what, of what God wants you to do? Have you basically convinced yourself that this is all about you as opposed to being about the people around you who desperately need the God that you already know? How about everybody else? Are you living in Nineveh? Have you holed up in a nice fortified city thinking you're just fine all by yourself, worshiping your own God, doing your own thing? Do you hear God calling to you today to surrender your life fully and completely to Him? So far in the series, we've, uh, we've visited a lot of different places. The first week, we visited the bottom of a pit with King David. And we found out that God would go to great depths to save people. In fact, He would go to the depth of bringing and allowing His only Son to come to this earth to die on a cross to save us from our sins. That's a pretty great depth. In week number two, we, we heard that no matter how tattered or broken our past is, we learned that Jesus wants the rose. No matter how soiled or stained we might be, we got to celebrate the fact that Jesus wants all of that because He wants us. Last week, we, we, we sat with Jesus in a garden. We listened to Him pray that agonizing prayer, not my will but yours be done. You know what He was saying in that moment? He was saying, people matter to God. I'll do anything I can to save them. And today... I believe it would be spiritual malpractice if we didn't at least give people an opportunity to respond to Him. To say, I've been living in Nineveh, or I've been running like Jonah, and I, I, I'm done. I surrender. All. So in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. and I'm going to ask everyone in a few moments to bow their head and close their eyes. If you're a rebellious prophet that's forgotten, what God's heart is, my prayer is that you'll use this moment to repent and tell God you're sorry. And you get things back in perspective. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, my prayer is that in this moment you'll understand to what great lengths God would go to to save you, forgive your sins, and wash you as white as snow. So would you bow your head and close your eyes with me today as we pray?